This is Cultural Mixtapes. I'm Tejas Srinivasan. Welcome to the show. About six months into my first year of college, I found myself lamenting about the beauties of suburban life to some friends. It struck me immediately that I was longing for a world that I found profoundly boring for 18 years and swore to never replicate. I was going to live my big life in cities. Yet the pleasures of driving around open roads amidst constant pockets of civilization and seeing the formation of an unspoken and distant community that was fostered through nothing more than proximity still appealed to me in a way my city-dwelling friends couldn't really understand. My suburban life in Ohio was quiet and comfortable, and for all it lacked, it also guaranteed a great deal. And this has been a bit of an obsession of mine since I moved away from the suburbs. Through college in a cold rural town to the Atlantic metropolis of London, something about suburban America still baffled me. I had read my fair share of suburban writers, but when I came across a book that strived to understand the weird yet alluring quality that American suburbia presents, I knew I had to read it with the hope that maybe this would scratch this never-ending itch. Jason Diamond is the author of the 2020 book The Sprawl, as well as a memoir from 2016 called Searching for John Hughes. In addition to his books, he also writes for various publications including New York Magazine and GQ and has a substack called The Melt. The defining quality of Diamond's book The Sprawl is that while it attempts to detail a history of America, it places the suburb at the center of this narrative. Diamond is of the suburbs, and his upbringing in a suburb of Chicago is central to the book itself. The sprawl combines personal anecdotes with heavily researched demographic and geographic data to try to answer the same question that was on my mind. What exactly is special about the American suburb? So this is where we start our conversation. Jason and I speak about his book, the exorbitant amount of driving he did to research it, as well as some of the cultural references that feature in its pages. This conversation about suburbia morphs into a larger one about America, and this is especially evident when we start talking about all the exclusion and racism that is a part of the suburban and American story. Diamond's writing is special because he uses common structures and cultural objects that have made it into the vernacular to ask questions about the culture he lives in. This is why later in the conversation, when I ask him about his critical process, I call him a chronicler of vibes. So that's what this conversation is. It starts with the suburbs, but then progresses into the two of us simply trying to gauge where the vibes are at. As always, everything we reference from books to movies to TV shows will be in the show notes. Hope you enjoy the show. Jason Diamond, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, your 2020 book, The Sprawl, you examine American suburbia from a very intriguing perspective. It's a, both a history and a reflection on the quirks of the American suburbs. So I want to start fairly simple, and you talk about it in your introduction as well. What is your definition of a suburb? I think and it's kind of funny now that I look at everything that happened before um, the book came out and after it came out is like a real before and after, because I do think because of the pandemic, I think things have sort of evolved a little bit. Really? Um, So I think like before 2020, I would have told anybody that to me, it's like the suburb is the most basic, easiest way to, to say it is you go outside of the city. That's when you are starting to find the suburbs it is suburban. Mm-hmm. So it is beyond. Um, now, over the last 60, 50, 60 years, there has been a big change in like what we consider urban, suburban. And then when you start getting out into, you know, like farmlands and small towns and this, those have sort of, those still exist, the small towns mm-hmm. that I don't think could be classified as suburbs, but they've, you know, especially in the last like 30 or 40 years, most of them have either gone away or they've been sort of, I want to say, sucked up into the suburban sort of mindset or the suburban design. But mm-hmm. um, we've built up those places or tried to build up those places. So the easiest way to put it is when you go outside of the city, you start 
to see the suburbs. And it's less of a place and more of a mindset, I think. And not to like get too in the weeds, but the reason I said the before and after 2020 thing is I started to notice, and this started happening, you know, not long after COVID, I would say like late 2020, early 2021, I started seeing City Island in, in New York start to sort of really embrace a lot of the trappings of the suburban lifestyle and mindset. And even like mm-hmm. when you go out to New Jersey, when I drive into the on the New Jersey highway, I see signs right now that advertise suburban living in the city. It's very strange to me. So I've really come to the conclusion and like, this is where, why I needed to write a book. You know, I was starting to come to it then, but it's definitely heightened itself over the last few years that it's more of a mindset and an idea at this point than it is any one place because all suburbs can be different. They don't, might not look different, but I think they still have little touches of regionality and different groups of people live in certain suburbs. Uh, one of the suburbs I lived in as a kid used to be, I think, German, Irish, Russian, and like Greek. And like a lot of like, you know, Jewish, like Soviet Jewish. Now it's like largely Russian and Korean, you know, which is, so you, you see that in a lot of places, you know, um, these different groups of people moving in and parts of Houston that are like largely like Indian or you have parts of Dallas that are, I believe, Caribbean. I, I've, I've just seen all these different places all over America that were like once this kind of suburb, just like very cookie cutter. Now they're like, you could find like places that sell roti or you could sell, you could find places that sell um Russian food that, or you know Polish food you know, it's it's so it's very it's always evolving it's interesting so you're you're saying that after the book well basically after covid this like suburban mindset is now migrating both into rural areas and urban city centers or I definitely see it in New York um okay. and I mean I see it when I go to Chicago I see it when I go to other big cities it's little things. It's just things I know. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say little in scale, but Mm -hmm. you know, for instance, I've seen this sort of um, the best example is one I can see from outside of my window. And it's, there's this, um, these very big glass condos were built up. And Mm -hmm. part of the promise was developers would build a public park. Okay. And the thing is, New York has this history of truly public parks, like public as public works. And to me, a public park is very necessary. You need public parks. You need benches for older people to sit on. You need all these things are that we think about as just like little things are actually really important to a community and to the people who live in them. And when you privatize these things then it kind of that to me is like a more suburban sort of thing that i've noticed is parks are part of like the more like they're more this brought this park brought to you by you know or this and so this public park that's down the street from me is not public it's it's a privately owned public park and it's in the middle of these giant very dystopian looking glass condos that allow no sunlight to sort of shine down on. It's very like, who wants to be here? But, you know, it's there. That's the new public space. And like, I see when I go out to the suburbs and I'm not, this is not a bash, but I see people don't really want to use the public spaces in the suburbs. That's not all suburbs. Like I could be, there's a lot of, suburban area to cover but when i go back to a town i lived in i walk around a lot i'm like there's nobody here it's deserted nobody's out walking you know i'll, I'll walk around i'm like why is there nobody hanging out in this beautiful park that they spent all this money to design and then i think about it, i'm like oh it's kind of like it's just not a thing that they want to do around here they want to sit in their house and and i think there's a carelessness to it i see that with like these kinds of parks around my my apartment and 
um, just little things I notice. And that's where kind of the germ of any idea comes from. It's like little things I notice. And whether or not it's an article or a book is always sort of, a, um, and this was just like an itch I couldn't scratch. I was like, mm -hmm. I really need to, I really need to look into this because I'm kind of obsessed with the suburbs and I don't get why. And the only way I'm going to figure it out is by writing a book. It's fascinating. So when you started researching for the book, um, I know you described several drives and walks that you take through different towns. How did you tackle quote unquote field work? And like, how did you manage finding the information that you needed to by going to these places? Well, the field work was really a lot of driving because that's a very suburban thing. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the rise of the rise of the automobile really does sort of line up very nicely with the rise of the suburbs. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, whereas there were technically suburban areas in the early 20th century, just like there were automobiles, but mm. both were not very accessible to most yeah. people. So I had to be honest, and I'm like, you know, these are not the easiest areas to walk, and you do really, to see them and understand them, you do really need to, like, engage them from the perspective that they were sort of built for. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did a lot of driving, and I think I, I come from a really funny background because... When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in the city and I was, I thought the city life was like the way that everything worked. Mm -hmm. And when I finally moved to the suburbs for good as a child, you know what I mean? I went to high school in the suburbs. I just always felt an unease and sort of like, it just didn't seem very natural to me. I could never put my finger on why. And you know, the more I would get out of the car and start walking around it, it would just be like, take my shoes off. This is going to sound so strange and hippy-dippy, but I remember taking my shoes off and walking around on the grass of some football field in this town that I knew. And I'm like, the grass doesn't feel real. You know, like it, yeah. was, it was turf, I think, but it was still real. It's just nothing, like I would walk around, I would touch things and there would be all like, sheen of like chemicals and from people you know like spraying it on their lawns yeah. and all these like weird little things and like there's silence except for cars and crickets and all these little things just started kind of adding up in my head and i'm like this is research like these little things yeah. i'm like noticing and picking up on you know and i'm not looking i'm not looking at my phone i'm not looking at a book i'm engaging with my senses and I'm engaging with the natural world and this natural world seems very unnatural to me yeah and so it just sort of started from there and then you know I'm I'm a insane researcher I read and read and read and read and you know the reading helps but I kind of started to notice that most of like the academic stuff for instance usually written by professors who live in cities yeah uh or critics who live in cities the work of a critic is i try to explain to people because i think we have such a horrid misunderstanding of what criticism is it's not to criticize it's to be critical and so yeah. you can like something and be critical of it the critics that i i mostly read who engage with the suburbs they seem to really genuinely dislike the suburbs and the literature, like the fiction, I read a lot of fiction like Cheever and, you know, a lot of the mid-century white guys. And then I read a lot of like, you know, a lot of people who were like kind of, it's like we kind of like call them that like now, like we're like, oh, it's Cheever and Updike and Roth, you know, yeah. but they were sort of onto something about how sad these places mm -hmm. can be. And then I started watching a lot of movies and rewatching movies and I just try to, whenever I engage something, I just try to take it from as many angles as I can. Yeah, you just mentioned Roth, and now that just got me thinking about how sad in Portnoy's, not Portnoy's complaint, in American Pastoral, how sad that suburban New Jersey life is of yeah. Zuckerman and the Swede. It just doesn't seem like there's much there. Yeah, and she and the daughter, I mean, hopefully I'm not spoiling it, but like the daughter <laughs> running away, I don't think Roth was trying to get at the whole like, people find themselves outside of these places. But I actually do think he was saying that. Not that, yeah. not that the daughter was doing anything. Like the daughter was 
there was a lot going on there. But um, I think about that more than all of his other books in terms of like how he really just so perfectly got that suburban sort of like, where did it all go? Why, why am I so unhappy? Why is everything miserable? Um, I don't know if it's like, because he kind of understands it from the Jewish first generation immigrant sort of thing, which I think now you're seeing a smarter take fictional take on the suburbs by people who are like immigrant or first generation from India, from Asia, from Mm. the Middle East, from, from Central America. Um, and that's really interesting to me, but Roth, I think, really kind of took it from a, a perspective that Cheever or Yates or Updike couldn't have seen it from. And that's why I, I always tell people, I'm like, that book is so crushing. It's really, it's really something else. But I think on the flip side of that book, you have someone like J.G. Ballard, the British writer, and he had his yeah. whole thing about how suburbia is where great art comes from and where innovation comes from because he claims that the boredom and existential dread of suburban life is what leads to innovation and things like that i think your book lives in a similar realm because rather than most of the critics you're talking about rather than taking the suburb as something analyzed from a city perspective you flip it and you analyze the rest of american life from a suburban perspective where did that shift come from because i think that was crucial to the way you understand america in your book yeah i think a big part of it was going back to what i said earlier like i i've seen both sides of it i've lived most of my life in cities now and i always tell people this is kind of a weird it's going to sound weird at first but years ago i wrote a thing for esquire about um guy fieri the television yeah and i was like you know the whole point of that piece and it was a very popular article was I'm fascinated with this idea I always blame it on being an American thing I don't necessarily know but I do really think Americans are very quick to be dismissive of anything and we're very quick to listen to I mean this is what gets us into so much trouble but we're intellectually we're we're I don't know we're one of the lazier cultures I could think of um and so we're very quick to be like I don't like that. That's bad. That's it. It's just bad. It's yeah. dumb. It's bad. It's ugly. It's whatever. Any word. And, you know, I, I'd written a few different things where I was like, I don't try to be, I'm not trying to be like, hey, this is good. You're an idiot. I don't try to look at it like that. I try to go, okay, first of all, why do I feel this way? Then why do the rest of us maybe feel this way? Like what's, what, what causes this? And then from there, what's good about this because everyone says something bad Mm. um and i'm not saying the suburbs are great i don't i live in the city for a reason but i do feel that if i hadn't like personally i moved back and forth with my thinking a lot but i you know i was thinking about what makes them good and i went back to me as a child you know I, i grew up in a little bit of a different i grew up in like the the 90s and we didn't have phones and that all i'm sure plays into it but my friends and I were really left to create. Mm. We were left to discover. We were left to be weird and to sort of go on these strange little adventures to places down the block or in the woods that had these stories that somebody probably made up or maybe they didn't about like haunted stuff and murders that took place that definitely didn't take place. The imagination is, it's like a muscle. You've got to keep, you know, exercising it. And those years I spent in the suburbs were super formative for my imagination to sort of run wild. And also for me to like find just like all these different kinds of art that I had to really grab onto, whether it was music or books or film. And I was like, this is mine. This is important. Like, I don't have anything else in this world because I've got a couple of blocks that I can walk and I've got these couple of albums and books and movies that I can watch and read and listen to. And I I started to think to myself, and the more I talk to people, I'm like, that's the experience a lot of people have. Um, At least curious people, like intellectually curious or artistically or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I, I was really lucky to have realized that. And I wanted to sort of, I don't know. I don't, I didn't want to pay tribute to it because I don't think the suburbs, I don't know, they don't need a tribute, but I do think there are going to be kids after me and after them and after them and after them. And the suburbs take up so much space in America yeah. that I would like to hope that like maybe I offered a blueprint to some kid who was like, hey, it's not great, but it's not bad. It's not all bad. I'm getting something out of it. Lovely. No, it's a great line about the suburbs. Um, Now onto the dark side of your book. Something that's not talked about much, but after reading, it seems quite obvious, or obviously the exclusion that takes place in suburbs and how the founders of these communities, whether they had a utopian vision or just wanted respite from a city, they wanted to make the suburbs oftentimes a place where they didn't have to be bothered by diversity, essentially. How deep... That's putting it, pile, that's putting it mildly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> How deep do the racist roots of suburbs run? Pretty, they're they're there. They're at the start of it, and you know, it's like to me, it's it's wild because that is where the suburbs. Uh, and I mean, you know, you have suburbs all over the world, but to me, that is the defining. I don't know. It's it's sort of like the um, the thing that makes the American suburbs uniquely american is that it's i'm laughing but it's sad but like everything in america we build everything it, it, there's always some exclusion or racism in, involved it's yeah. just that's and it's still to this day that way and just different than it was mm -hmm. it's just uh no, i'm sorry it's not different racism is racism exclusion is exclusion but it's um it's sort of dressed up differently yeah um and so you can't tell the story of America without saying, hey, people were literally brought over here in chains and forced to build it. And slavery built America. And it was built on land that was stolen by Native people. So that's where you start with the building of America. Then you go 150 whatever years later to the modern suburbs and... You know, I didn't even get that into the labor. I'm I'm assuming a lot of the labor was probably done on the cheap by mm -hmm. uh, immigrants and people of color. And you had places like Levittown, which, you know, is considered by many to, the, to be the first American suburb, which literally wouldn't sell to black people, people of color, uh, Jews. It was founded by Jewish people. And I'm Jewish. I couldn't have bought it's, really? it's a crazy thing yeah okay. it's a very very uh you know it was the same thing you had golf courses all over the country that had signs that you know there's one famously in baltimore that said um i think it said either no blacks or it literally explicitly said the n-word okay. no jews no dogs i think um and there was another one that you would see that said also instead of dogs no irish yeah that's a that's a weird one but i mean yeah I've heard of suburbs that um, I've heard of suburbs that um, pushed back on having Catholic churches oh, wow. because you know we when you look at the history of America that's something we've kind of forgotten is that Catholicism was sort of lumped in with African Americans and Jews and like the KKK routinely vandalized Catholic-owned businesses and churches. It, it was everywhere. It was you know it was a thing that you couldn't get past and it wasn't legal but it yeah. wasn't illegal because it was like a handshake deal and they had yeah. all these all these like gentlemen's agreements that you wouldn't sell to a, a black person or to a jewish person or to you know a hispanic person or an indian person just white people um which it's kind of crazy that um you know that was sort of the idea that a lot of these people who were into utopian ideas kind of were like oh yeah you know utopia means no black people like you know there were people yeah. who thought that and it's like it's very it's pretty strange to go to those places now you know just to kind of feel the weight of that but also to see like hey now and not and you know there are some of the places i wrote about but i wouldn't say there are a lot of black people or people of color but there are some and i'm like i i've kind of grown to sort of 
you know, I, I'm a white person, so it's still, it's, I think it's a little different because I could just kind of walk through and be like, oh, well, I'm still, you know, I'm white. You might yeah. not know I'm Jewish, but um, I can't imagine that sort of weight of, you know, knowing, you know, when you go somewhere it's like, I'm standing on ground where 60 years ago, I couldn't have stood. There's something very strange about that. And that's a lot of America, suburbs, cities, it's, it's everywhere. So it plays into it in a big way. And I think what your book does well is it takes these instances of the foundings of these suburbs and these agreements that were made to exclude people of color. You read that as reflective of basically the American mindset from founding to, I don't know how late, it's almost reflective of where America's attitudes are based on the suburbs. I guess if you take it into the present, you have a line at the end saying that, that racism and exclusionary practices happened enough that Americans developed an idea of who did and who did not live in the suburbs. There was that story a couple years ago about Montclair, New Jersey, and how a wealthy black family had the police called on them for like permits. And I think New York Magazine called her Permit Karen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The question is, how insular are these communities in 2023? So that's a good question, because I think in the last two or three years, I've really seen the rise, and this kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions. Mm. I've seen the rise of a term in cities that I'd only previously seen in suburbs, and that's NIMBY, not okay. in my backyard. Okay. Um, and it's interesting to me because, you know, I, I saw a lot of people who have that attitude in the suburbs. Like, this isn't happening in my backyard. Yeah. You know, no we're not going to have gangs here or we're not going to have drugs here or whatever their, you know, ideas are. And I think it's still incredibly prevalent. Like there's still this idea that you go to the suburbs and bad things won't happen. This won't happen here. That won't, I don't think it's as much like I, I, I would hope, but I honestly, like I said, it's so big. It's impossible to say, but I, I don't think People move to the suburbs and go, well, I'm moving here because I'm not expecting to see any Korean people or any <laughs> black people yeah. or any, Mex you know, I don't, I don't think that's the idea anymore. That was once the idea. That was what white flight truly was. White people saw too many people that didn't look like them moving into their city and they had to, they were like, we got to get away from this. I don't know. Um how people that move to the suburbs feel about all that, but I do see a lot of the discourse around uh, homelessness and home unhoused people. I, I believe is the term we use now, but uh, in places like New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, I see a lot of people saying, "I'm moving to the suburbs because the cities are overrun by drugs and and homeless people." That's you know, if you think you're getting away from anything by moving, you're an idiot, first of all. That's not true. But um, I also think, like, it's more self-delusional. And it kind of remains a self-delusion. It doesn't, like, I don't think people are hanging out in the suburbs, getting together for a beer once a week and be like, wow, we're really safe here. This is great. Look at us, our little circle of safe suburban friends. I, I think actually what's happened and the more people I talked to in the suburbs, the more I, I was kind of blown away by this fact. But I can't tell you how many people I talked to across the country who were like, I, I've lived here 15 years. I've never met my neighbors. I've never talked to my next door neighbor. I've seen them. I know their name because I got their mail once, but I've never had a conversation. Like stuff like that. That's kind of the thing that's really kind of fascinating to me is that I think once people were like, well, I'm moving to the suburbs so I could be a away from something, but be around something. And by that, I mean, be away from people who don't look like me or share the same religious beliefs as me or speak the same language as me and be a around those who are like me. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, what people wanted once. Now I think people go to the suburbs so they can lock themselves in their homes and watch TV or sit on a computer or whatever. It's I, I, I'm not trying to sound flip by saying that. It's like, I really just think, you know, we've become such a lonely culture. Mm. That's, I think, you know, it's pretty, 
fascinating to me to watch that. Like people like seclude themselves in their homes. And I don't really understand why you would want to do that, but I also kind of understand why you do that want to do that because the world is very scary. Something that feels almost exclusive to American suburbs is this question of identity. So I just got back from living in London for a year and I spent a lot of time in the North London suburbs. And what seems to be different about American suburbs to me is that people's identity is centered around the suburb. Whereas mm -hmm. in the UK and other parts of the world, as far as I've seen, the suburban identity is simply an extension of the city. People who live as far away from central London as I do from the city of Cincinnati would still say they're from London, but I wouldn't tell people that I'm from Cincinnati. The same thing goes for many other places. I think the place you grew up is not that far from Chicago, but it's still, a, yeah. it's, it's very different. Why do you think this special case comes for American suburbs where the identity is so removed from the urban culture? You know, we've been, and this is another thing that's been happening uh, since 2020. It was a thing that was like from the past. Uh, we used to really demonize the cities. Like when you watch any movie from like the 70s or the 80s, uh, and I love, I love this trope. It's actually hilarious to me, but like the white family going from the suburbs into the city, like, oh, nice lawns, nice you know two-story houses and then it's just like the city it's always nighttime yeah. almost and there's always a burning trash can and there's always like a doo-wop band or like some shady like black guy or some shady immigrant guy like vaguely eastern european-ish maybe and there's always someone looking to like either stick you up or scam you and you know, that, that kind of went away over time. I mean, I still think there were people who believed that the cities were like that. I certainly have met my share of people who are like, oh, Chicago or New York, they're so dangerous. And I was like, no, they're not. Literally, I'm watching like a woman walk a poodle with a dyed pink tail right now. It's not very dangerous. But uh, and she's like literally walking to an ice cream truck and getting and I'm like, this is like so cute to me. But um after 2020, I think when we started kind of seeing this, um, you know, I, I feel like everybody sort of got a taste of what dystopian feels like. Like it really started to hit home mm -hmm. like, oh, like we could be, even if nobody had read, uh, you know, you mentioned Ballard or uh, nobody had read William Gibson or I was like, oh, suddenly all of you know what I've been reading my whole life. Like this is... Like we've got a pandemic and we've got riots and we've got all this crazy stuff and people were trapped in their homes. So they were seeing, you know, I think the news, the media was like, oh, there's a small uprising, a, a small riot, a riot happening in New York City. You know, this was after, uh, during the George Floyd protests. And suddenly they were like, so dangerous. New York is so dangerous oh my God, it's a war zone. And I'm like, first of all, I'm literally in the center of Brooklyn, right where the George Floyd, Floyd protests were would start out of every night. And the marches were incredibly peaceful. You would just see dozens of helicopters swarming and police in riot gear running down the street. And I'm like, that to me is a little bit scarier, way scarier than what people marching down my street. Um, but the media was like, nope, the city has descended into chaos. It's it's hell on earth. It's this and that. And I'm like, okay, that's BS. And I could see it with my own eyes. Um, but ever since then, this narrative has kind of crept back into our culture mm -hmm. that the cities are falling apart and they're these dangerous, terrifying places. And they're and I'm like, no, they're not. They're really actually it's the opposite unfortunately they're being built up too much like they're being turned into the suburbs like we're yeah. building these massive buildings that we don't need and it's the sprawl is in the cities i think people still need to tell themselves that they're different that they're doing something yeah. that they're somewhere different that they're somewhere safer that they're somewhere prettier they're somewhere less hectic and maybe it is less hectic but it's it's not that much different anymore, at least. No matter what we want, it's all ourselves. Um, we've been talking a lot about 2020 and what that did to 
people's attitudes about where they live. This was published in August of that year, but obviously I'd imagine most of it was written before the pandemic. If you had to add a chapter, what would you be focusing on? See, there's a few things I've thought about. Um, you know, there's one chapter in particular that I'm always kind of, I, I found, I have a lot of friends who are like, you know, more tapped into the pol into political discourse. And I think they help get the book in the hands of like more like academic focused people or writers. And so I think some people, especially with like more like leftist leaning politics, uh, were a little unhappy with my chapter about these people in Connecticut fighting against these developers. Yeah. I would like, I, I always liked that chapter because I think the point of it was more, I was trying to show, like those people literally say, I think in the chapter, like I had never met my neighbors. And I, I would like to be able to sort of rework that to kind of, or have an additional part to it about like what the chapter means. Like it's about connectivity. And it's about literally walking outside and saying hello to people, what human interaction can can do and mm -hmm. how if we just were to sort of, and so I think if I were to like be able to read, to add anything to the book, it would be more exploration of what we've lost in terms of an already slowly decline or quickly declining. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how fast, it's hard to figure out how fast things move anymore, but a rapidly declining and when i say society i really mean society like we don't engage with each other or yeah you know we we do everything on the phone or on the computer now um and we're in this literal another epidemic we're in an epidemic of loneliness and i would love to explore that um one of the books that really influenced this was um this book called bowling alone I think it came out like 20 years ago uh, it was by robert d putnam and it was exploring the um the sort of loss of these like social groups whether it was churches or bowling leagues or you know just places and organizations that brought people together and i'd really like to explore just how much more we've lost in terms of connectivity like actual mm -hmm. like how comfortable we got in our discomfort because yeah. that's something that's really scary to me I think because I think the more disconnected we become the less human we become and I don't mean that like obviously in the physical way but I do think we've really lost a lot of ourselves in the last few decades but it's especially been rapid uh since 2020 and I tell people I'm like you should go and talk to people all the time go out go eat at a restaurant go sit in a park whatever you have to do it's like loneliness is crippling and like you need to talk to people we all need people Obviously, it's like it's impossible. I'm not really good at like giving a uh, an elevator pitch. Like this is it. I'm going to do this. Yeah. But I do think it would be exploring that sometime. Mm -hmm. I want to switch to more like a general discussion of your work. Your writing style throughout, from your Substack called the Melt to the various publications you write in, you write in a style that I think it stems from the likes of like anyone from a Joan Didion to a Jerry Saltz to a Samantha Irby almost. In a very strange way, I classify you as a chronicler of vibes. I've been I love told, that. I've been told off for using that description before, but you take items in culture or food and see them as reflections of a larger American aesthetic. Like, for example, you use the Odeon in New York as reflective of the Brat Pack or as the way Americans viewed that group of people or Spago Rock as a symbol of a way of life in 80s and 90s California, things like that. You're probably not self-conscious about your own style, but what draws you towards a particular topic? Because you write about loads of things. Well, for one, I can't be self-conscious because I'm I'm a self-taught writer. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't get, you know, I didn't get an MFA. I I had to fail a lot to be, I was a terrible, I, I mean, I'm not saying this to be self-deprecating. I was a terrible writer when I started out. Okay. I just kept going. I'm just like, I'm just going to keep learning things. I'm going to keep getting better. I'm going to keep practicing. I'm going to keep. So it's really hard for me to to feel that way at this point, because I've, I'm like, oh, you know, I've built this myself. And I've really, um, if, I, if I even give any thought to how I feel about my work, then I'm going <laughs> to either become, I'm definitely not going to become big headed. Let's put it that way. But um, I don't know. It's like, I've just always been really curious. And it's a funny thing because when I was a kid, 
this is like you know the late 80s when i was really young and they put me in front of a television and i'd watch like sesame street okay. or i'd watch one of the adult shows like cheers or seinfeld mm. and i'd be like it's so interesting to me that these shows are so and this is like you know i, I it was a little less nuanced than this but because uh, i was like nine but i'd watch these shows and i would be like it's really interesting to me that these worlds are so are like contained on Sesame Street. Yeah. Which didn't look like it was was not a real street, obviously. Or Jerry Seinfeld's apartment, or this bar, or the three places you see when you watch Friends, or and I was like, I wonder what the rest of the their world looks like. And I just think that's just how I approach everything. Mm-hmm. Um, like what's the rest of this? You know, like I'll read a short story and I'll be so taken by it. And maybe there's like one sentence and I'm like, huh, I wonder how they started thinking about that. And I'll just dig into like where the writer was from. And I think part of it is, this is going to sound really silly, I'm sure, but I've seen therapists my entire life and my mom really loved to drag me to Freudian doctor, mm-hmm. doctors uh, and young uh with symbolism and stuff so i'm always kind of like looking not into symbolism but i'm kind of like looking and not metaphor either but i'm looking kind of to sort of be like what does this mean yeah um because i you know i was taught very early on because i like to i'm a study i've always been a good study of people and i noticed like these doctors kind of kept asking me what do you think it means and what do you and i just think i started applying that to just my worldview and so whenever I get really interested in something, it just kind of starts spinning out of control in my brain. And I'm like, Oh, there, there needs to be something larger here. Sometimes it's only, it, I only need to write a thousand words to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it has to go longer. And then, you know, and then sometimes there are just things I like to bring to people's attention. I think there's so much negativity and I think there's, there's reason for that. I think it's, I'm very happy. There are journalists and writers out there who, bring things into the light that we need to be talking about. That's just not who I am. I'd rather be like, Hey, this is something I'm excited about. Um, And so I'm always trying to, you know, I'm not like, I'm not exactly like little miss sunshine, but I'm trying to like take things from an enthusiast's perspective. Lovely. Um, Yeah, no, very interesting to see because your Substack has things, a lot of food, but then suddenly there'll be a piece about, I don't know, an eighties movie. You had a thing about De Niro yesterday, stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I, I, when I started writing professionally, I made a very conscious effort, and I think, in a lot of ways, this has been to my detriment. Like I was like, I, I see friends who definitely went the other route, and have had a lot of success, but I never wanted to be, I didn't want to have a, a one thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have a beat. Yeah. Um, and I have friends who are terrific writers who can who have beats. Like they can write about food or they can write about, you know, their movie critics or their, and I'm very blessed that I know all these people. Mm. And I'm, I'm so happy that I've like kind of filled my life with these people who think so deeply about a specific topic. But the funny thing is when I hang out with them, all I want to do is talk about anything else besides <laughs> what they, because it's really fascinating when you can get, you know, a book critic to sort of, start talking about 80s movies that they like like somebody who's like well versed in like ukrainian poetry and the works of you know some ninth some obscure 1970s you know guatemalan writer Mm. and then they start talking about like meatballs like you know you're like oh this is fun like let's see how you're gonna do this it's just i think it's a better way to sort of experience the world and sort of just instead of just being like okay here's the one room i'm given on a tv show and I'm just going to take it at face value and that's it. I think the more you can sort of sort of dig into things, you know, the more you start to enjoy them. And I think that's really what I'm trying to do for anybody who is nice enough to read me and deal with my rambling. Wonderful. Um, before my last question, I just have something random that I saw on your Instagram a few days ago. What are your thoughts on the preview for the new Bradley Cooper, Leonard Bernstein movie? I think everything on my Instagram is pretty random. That's, I think, why people like it so much, because I'm like, and people are like, God, you, it's so random on there. And I'm like, welcome to my brain. Um, I'll be honest, like, I, I thought the 
discourse around it has been interesting uh, because, you know, I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm not mad at it. I don't think Bradley Cooper, I, I think for context, I don't know when this is coming out, uh, but anybody who hasn't listened, you know, the, the big hubbub is Bradley Cooper is playing Larry Bernstein. He's playing a, So he's playing a Jewish character and he got a prosthetic nose that makes his nose longer. For me personally, and I said this on Twitter because I think people took a tweet that I, I jokingly put out in the world referencing a 30 rock joke but using a picture of bradley cooper and people were like it's anti-semitism and i was like okay no it's not anti-semitism <laughs> i really need to like put this out there i'm not one of those people who is comfortable with jumping and calling things racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-semitic unless it really is i think it's very important that we like use those terms when they're necessary mm-hmm. um and so to me, if you're anti-Semitic, you just don't like Jews. If you're homophobic, you don't like gay people. You know, I, I feel like that's just it. It's like you just, you are against these things. And I don't think for a second Bradley Cooper doesn't like Jewish people. He's an actor and he's he was in Wet Hot American Summer. I just think it was a bad idea because in the current climate we're living in, which is a climate where you're routinely seeing people from different ethnic and religious groups being targeted mm-hmm. constantly um you know it was during the first few years of covid you saw this tremendous spike in asian americans getting you know beaten up and and it was terrible and you know before that you go back 15 20 years after 9/11 you were seeing muslims you saw indian people you saw sikhs you saw anybody who was even considered like if you know and this is this is goes back to our very weak intellectual curiosity anybody who somebody might have thought was muslim which is also the most problematic thing in the world they would you know they were routinely nervous for their safety and so the last 20 something years i think it's been a lot of different groups have had to have had to deal with this in one way or another and as a jew I'm first generation. My family are whole. I have Holocaust survivor family. So I'm very in tune to like this stuff. And, you know, one of the big things over time has been the Jewish nose. It's been a joke. It's been literally every anti Semitic caricature has a big nose. To me, it's just not about Bradley Cooper. It's about what we accept and won't accept. And when we sort of are like, oh, that's acceptable. We don't have to be upset about that. That to me is a little bothersome and, and and not and it's not a good road to be going down. So it had nothing really, it had less to do with Bradley Cooper in the movie than it did just that fear that, you know, I'm fr- I'm nervous. You know, I, I get nervous. I get nervous for myself. I get nervous for my black friends or my Asian friends or my my LGBTQ friends. You know, it's a scary time. So I don't, that's a long way of saying I'm probably gonna watch the movie. I'm fascinated with the material. Uh, I'm kind of curious to see what he does with it. But, you know, it just seemed kind of like pointless. Like there didn't seem to be a reason to do it. And so I got upset. And I I think anybody who is upset has a right to be. I just think we need to talk about it instead of yelling. Mm -hmm. I think that's really it. Yeah. My last question, same for everyone, which is what have you been reading, watching, or listening to lately that you've enjoyed? I have been, that's so weird. I haven't really been watching much lately. Um, I didn't even think about that. I have, I should watch something. You know, we're in the middle of this strike, the WGA and for mm. um, SAG after. It's it's kind of this like, I have this weird fatalism right now when it comes to anything new. I watched The, Royal Je- uh, the Righteous Gemstones mm. recently, which that show blows me away. Danny McBride is a genius. Um He's one of the most interesting minds, not just in comedy, but in entertainment right now. Um, He's just so good at what he does. And that show is great. I just yesterday picked up, I do this every few years. Anybody who likes American fiction usually ends up reading Grace Paley's short stories. Um, And for me, it's just like, I have to go back and revisit her every few years. And Mm -hmm. I've been doing that. And that's been really good. (laughs) Like, that's been very... uh, um, I'm reading, what am I reading? Let me look really quick. 
Oh yeah, I've been reading Sean Delar's I Could Not Believe It, the 1970, his 1979, or their 1979 diaries. And this is fascinating because I love weird diaries of like underground mm. DIY music people or artists. And um, Sean Delar was like this like Los Angeles underground figure. And this is, you know, late 70s. It's fascinating stuff, just mm. like the observations and the things I'm seeing in it. Yeah, and then I'm probably going to do what I do every August and reread Colson Whitehead's Sag Harbor, which um, okay. I always say it's the greatest end of summer book America has produced. Really? Um, okay. Oh, yeah. I love Cole. I just finished his... See, once I start rolling, I'm like, oh, yeah. I, oh, no. I just finished I just finished um, Crook Manifesto, his latest book. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the Harlem stuff. Like, it's funny because he wrote these two Pulitzer Prize winning books in a row. And then he's like, I want to write a little bit more genre focus, a little bit more crime. And I'm loving it. Um, I, I just think it's so fun. And he's okay. so good at it. He's so good at everything he does. That's really it. I think I'm just kind of winding down the summer. You know, I have literally like eight stacks of books right now. I'm, I just finished uh, writing two books of my own in the last few weeks. So mm-hmm. I'm like just trying to unwind from yeah. all that mentally. Yeah. Of course. Well, I look forward to reading those. and. Thank you so much for your time. I believe. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. And that's our show. Special thanks to Jason Diamond for joining me on this episode. To learn more about his work and see a list of his recommendations, visit the show notes. Cultural Mixtapes is written and produced by me, Tejas Srinivasan. The music you heard on today's episode was Beethoven's Sonata No. 26 and Chopin's Sonata No. 2, recorded by me. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, review, and share on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen. Thank you very much for listening.